That's what you should be focused on. Yeah, but I have to do. No, you don't. Go do that. Yeah, but no, it doesn't matter. Go do that. Go do the things that you're strong in. You're going to have to leave the other things. Either set them aside or get other people to do them. I had a CEO coach once that looked at my calendar. He looked at the calendar. He said, your calendar is full up. It's really, it's busy for weeks. I said, yes, it is. Isn't that great? He says, nope, it's the worst thing in the world. He says, what you need to be doing is thinking, strategizing, and bringing your uniqueness to this business. And you've given yourself no time to do that. All you're doing is attending meetings. And you're not going to be successful if that's all you do. You need 80% of your calendar blank and left blank. So you can deal with the emails that come in and think about them strategically rather than just get a reply out. Everything's got to be strategic that you do because it will multiply across your organization. And so you need the time to do that because no one else in your business is going to do that. It's you. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selleck, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey, the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, Seven Hatters. Gear up for an electrifying episode as we journey into the dynamic universe of Kevin Serace, a renowned innovator, technologist, and master of many roles. Dive with us today into Hats 1 and 4, the soul and the entrepreneur, as we explore the intricate mindset of this outstanding entrepreneur. Kevin is an award-winning CEO and CTO and a prominent figure in Broadway and film production. An innovator at heart, he delves into the realms of generative AI, ML, automation, software, and so much more. As a serial entrepreneur, he's renowned for transforming the budding stages of businesses into esteemed companies valued at over $1 billion. And with a remarkable tally of 94 worldwide patents, his prowess is undeniable. Recognized by Inc. Magazine as Entrepreneur of the Year in 2009, Kevin's feats have been highlighted across all major business publications. So, if you're yearning to be inspired by the harmonious interplay of technology, arts, and life's myriad challenges, let's give a rousing welcome to Kevin on The Seven Hats. Kevin, welcome to The Seven Hats. Thank you for having me, Yuval. Well, listen, I'm super pumped for today's episode because I think we're going to nerd out uh, on some topics that I absolutely love. We will probably take a deep dive into the mind of a real game changer, someone who's truly making waves in our world. Uh, we'll also chat about one of my favorite topics these days, AI, the crucial role of inspiration in our work. And we'll probably, if you'll allow it, even touch on some spiritual stuff. Absolutely. But... Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. We always love to kick things off by exploring those early formidable years that shaped our guests into the disruptors that they become. So let's start at the very beginning. Kevin, where were you born and how was your childhood like? 
Sure. I was born in upstate New York and lived much of my childhood outside of Syracuse, New York, in a place called Camillus. Went to a great school district, West Genesee, and was in the marching band. Now, being a bandy, that means you could be picked on. <laughs> <laughs> Especially by the, you know, the, the, the sports people, right, who were out there winning games. And we eventually worked our way to a national championship marching band. But boy, there was a lot of pain in between and a lot of losses in between and losses we didn't think we should have. But I, I would tell you that kind of teamwork, there's a lot more to say there, but just to diverge a second, that kind of teamwork that happened in marching band and absolutely happens on sports teams in high school. If you realize it's a team and you you have to work it as a team. You're all dependent on really the weakest link, you know, and you don't want to be that weakest link and you don't want the person next to you. So you're propping them up. And in fact, you're praying, you're doing prayer circles in those days and praying for everyone around you. And hopefully they're praying for you, right? Because you're scared at the same time. That kind of training is something that you wish you had when you went to be an entrepreneur because you're going to need those skills. And if you didn't get them in high school, and many people don't, they don't go to their classes, they get straight A's or B's or C's or D's, or whatever it is, they come out, they go to college, and then they come out and they really, really don't understand EQ, teamwork, yeah. losses and failures, coping skills, right? All of these things that turn out to be so critical to be successful as an entrepreneur. And still you won't be successful every time, but at least you're lining up the right ingredients to be so. So how was my childhood? My child was re really good. I know so many people, all of our friends, right? Oh, my child was terrible. My mom and my dad beat me. And, you know, and I get that. And a lot of kids had terrible childhoods, mostly because parents weren't, had no classes to become parents. And, and so they're imperfect human beings as we were, as we are parents, right? Of course, we think our parenting skills are way better than our parents were, but actually find ourselves doing a lot of the things that our parents did. But I had a, you know, I grew up in an Italian family, you know, Italian-American household, uh, and my parents were fantastic parents. My dad worked for GE. Hmm. He traveled half the time. That was certainly hard and hard on the family and hard on my mom, and she would cry. He's gone again, but that was his job. I mean, that's what you do with sales and marketing. You had to travel around the world. He did before, that was in the 60s and 70s, really before people were widely traveling. And, you know, he'd fly off to Europe and come back in two days and tell us all these stories. And, but, you know, for me, I thought my childhood was fantastic. My, my schooling was fantastic. Um, the hard part was, again, I think when you're in band and you're a band nerd, everyone's a nerd at some level there. You know, you're a tech nerd or you're a, you know, but the sports people were cool. You know, the band band people were a little bit nerdy, but but I was okay with that. That turned out to to actually, in the long run, be a great skill set to have. But I didn't know it at the time, right? When the kid sitting next to you is making fun of you, it, it really hurts in high school. It must be a upstate New York thing because in ninth grade, I moved to Hunter Tannersville, mm -hmm. which uh, is pretty close by in that area. And I was made fun of. I was a city kid. Mm -hmm. Thought I knew everything. Mm -hmm. Came in with a baseball cap and Walkman. I couldn't find a friend for the following year till I had to move back to this. You know, city. especially high school, junior high and high school or middle school and high school, kids even today are so hard on other kids. You know, if your your hair is a little different or this is a little different, and you know, and they go after you, and then you've got no friends right o over yeah. there. But but the good thing about marching band is we had our marching band friends. And so yeah. if you were in the music program, you had your music, maybe you were all music nerds together, but 
you were music nerds together. At least you had some group. You weren't completely alone. And again, good, really good lessons there. But uh, I always hated it when my kids were going through some of the sports that they went through for quite a while. They had, you know, no lose scenarios. Everybody got a trophy just for playing. That pained me because I worry, you know, life is full of ups and downs and wins and losses, wins and losses, wins and losses in the stock market, wins and losses in your business, wins and losses with the kids doing good or bad or grades or whatever, right? Jobs, every, I mean, everyone's going to get laid off someday. It's how it works. And if you're not prepared for coping with the losses, you're in trouble and you need to be prepared for coping with losses, you know, at 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. So you're ready. And when you get an F on that paper in college, even though you got straight A's and then you get an F or on that test, then that's happened to me. I mean, it's A, 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 F. How can it be? How did I misinterpret this? How, you know, I totally took the problem wrong. It's an engineering problem. And, and I get an F and I'm, you know, in tears with the teacher and this and that. And, you know, of course they're going, look, don't worry, we're going to drop the lowest one and we're going to wait and, and this and that. But you have to be like ready to cope with that. Get up the next day and say, all right, it's, it's, a, it's a do-over. I'm going to go get an A on the next one because i got to make up for it, right? Otherwise, you're going to wallow in your sorrows. Same, sure. same with startups. Same yeah, with startups. No question about it. So did you want to become a musician? What did you want to do in high school? Of course I did, yes. Uh, what I wanted to do is, uh, is act and sing on stage and go to Broadway and play. I'm a drummer and play drums. And uh, my dad said, that's all interesting, but no. <laughs> No, you can go get an engineering degree or, let me think, an engineering degree. Yeah. And I guess today we would look at parents telling their kids that and go, oh, you know, you need to give them freedom and you need to give them the thoughts. And then I didn't have any of those thoughts. It was like, you know, you're pretty good at these engineering courses. You seem to be attracted to it. My dad was at GE, worked in audio electronics. So that was radios and tape recorders and clock radios of the day, you know, like a billion dollar business in that stuff. And so I got to take those apart and I got to fix them and repair them. And I had a little repair business, right? And so he could see that I had an aptitude towards those, towards electronics, and that's what I should go do, and towards coding. I was coding in high school, and so I should go do that. And he was right, actually. I mean, that's, the, that's where parents sometimes should put their foot down and go, I know this is what you want to do, and I've given you lots of freedom to make choices. Here's a 300, these days, you know, 300, $400,000 choice that you're not going to make alone. <laughs> right? Yeah. You may need some guidance in this because, you know, as a, 40, 50, 60-year-old parent, you just know a lot more about where the jobs are going to be. And they're not necessarily going to be singing and dancing on Broadway. There are jobs, and I love my Broadway work, which we can talk about because that's part of my balancing of life. But uh, it is, it, it, you know, that's, a, that's also a critical lesson. I said, yes, Dad. I went off engineering school at Rochester Institute of Technology, where I'm today on the board of directors there, on the board of trustees. And um, it was a great school. I worked really, really hard. There were times I did terrible, but I got through, graduated, you know, high honors and went off to Silicon Valley. Wow. Let me ask you a question because my dad, we have a music background. My dad builds and repairs violins, cellos, and violas. Yeah. And throughout my childhood, he wasn't traveling. He was home, but yet was not home because he locked himself in a room. And for most of my childhood, I had a dad, but he was an absentee dad in some right. respect. Right. Uh, growing up, I didn't realize or really understand the dynamics of that relationship. And I think as we grow older, we look back and find a void that potentially you can excuse away as an mm-hmm. adult. Mm-hmm. 
because you understand how difficult it is to raise a family and to mm-hmm. support a family. And you got to do what you got to do, especially with my parents who were immigrants mm-hmm. uh, and came to the United States very young with no money nothing. in their pockets, right. nothing. And they right. had to prove themselves. There were, there, was, there were times that they couldn't afford shoes or, or food. Right. And that was, those were formidable years for me. Right. So I excused the fact that he had to do what he had to do uh, in order to survive. So, of course, I don't blame the action. However, I feel like my drive to succeed and the need to be an entrepreneur in, in some form stemmed from the fact that he wasn't around. Right. And I'm trying to prove something, appease, make proud. Is that something that resonates with you? Or yeah, how I, is I that understand. child? I understand. Look, you know, it's, it's interesting because your parents, by chance, give you a certain drive, right? Whatever that is. And I don't know that we can all identify exactly where that came from. I think you've spent time identifying where you think that comes from for you. You know, look, I think my father, both my parents had a high bar and um, they expected you to win. And if you didn't win, they still loved you. It was unconditional love. But, you know, let's talk about why you got that F or let's talk about why you got thrown out of that class or, you know, let's talk about why the band lost or whatever sports team lost. And so it was unconditional love, but it was clear that you lost. And, (laughs) And there is value in that to then come back around and say, well, I prefer to win. Like I'm a, humans are a reward based thing, you know, reward based society. We like rewards and a reward doesn't mean you got money. It just means you want that affirmation, right? You weren't getting the affirmation perhaps that, that, that you needed. I was getting affirmation, but I got a lot better affirmation when we won and, and I got hugs when we lost, you know, understand it, but you know, tomorrow you're going to get up and do better. Not you're going to get up and you're, and it's fine. It doesn't matter if you lost. No, it matters if you lost. It matters because you will win and lose throughout life. So I'd say, and and my dad was, was in the, in the military, you know, before getting married. And so he certainly had that kind of drive. And I think that comes from a lot of people who were in the military, in the army, you know, there's a certain kind of training, like, well, we're here to win because to lose is to die. Right. So (laughs) we're not going to lose. We're going to win. So I think there was a there was a drive. Uh, also, you know, their parents were Italian immigrants who came with nothing, and when they started, they had very very little, very yeah. very very little, right in a tiny little town in upstate New York, and they had to work for for everything. I mean, really, really, yeah. really put in a lot of hours and hard work for everything. So you saw that as an example. So I, you know, I can't answer for everyone else's parents, but when I look at that, you go, all right, somehow I got a lot of drive from that combination of things that they did as parents. I certainly, my dad was there, but only about half the time because he had to travel. But I recognized that he had to travel for his business, and that's how we were able to eat. And Correct. that was okay. Like, yeah. I had no, that, that was explained to me, and I, I didn't feel like, oh, I wish you were here. He can't always be here for every school concert or whatever it is we're doing. But mom was there, right? And that's okay. And he tried to be there. Very supportive. I mean, when he was in town, he went to every band competition and everything. There's no more supportive father in the world. But if he's traveling, he's traveling. And then when I got into business, I had to travel, certainly at first, a lot, mm-hmm. 50, 60, 70, 80% of the time. And it was terrible for me to miss my kids' performances. Yeah. But what could I do? I mean, I had to earn a living. That's what the job was. It, it, it's what we do. Yeah. It's hard to complain because I speak with so many who never had parents or at least a functioning a functioning 
childhood uh, right. because either their one of their parents was deceased or potentially neglect uh, abuse. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I think we had it pretty good. Pretty darn good. Uh, pretty darn good. So Kevin, take us through those early years when you landed in Silicon Valley. What happened there? So I went to work for a large company, National Semiconductor, mm-hmm. and ended up only staying about a year. Not because I didn't like the work, although there was so much red tape. It was a big company. You know, it was tens of thousands of employees, right? Yeah. Multi-billion dollar company. And the amount of red tape really struck me. I, I should go back a little bit because before I went to Silicon Valley, I worked for over five years in upstate New York. I worked for a company called Sounds Great. And um, that was an audio video retailer. Best training in the world. Best training in the world. Because uh, by the time I had left, I had closed about 10,000 sales. We could could track it in the computer. And that meant I literally had to have a one-on-one relationship for five minutes, 50 minutes, three hours, days, whatever, with 10,000 humans. And when I started there, I was not good. And then I got better and better and better. And I was on the floors selling, you know, one-on-one selling. Because in those days, you'd come in and someone would say, you have like a thousand receivers here. What do I need? What do I want, right? It's my job to say, well, you need a receiver. You need some speakers. You probably need a turntable and look at this new CD player, whatever it is, right? Yeah. So they were, you had to develop one-on-one relationships. And, and so I got better and better and better. I was in the whatever, you know, top 10 or top 20 salespeople out of about 250. And then we had a sales trainer come in and teach us the Dale Carnegie sales course, which is different than just the Dale Carnegie course, but it's five steps of the sale. I, I, I use open qualification, conviction, objection, close. Okay. And you got to go through those five steps. So I, I went to the classes and I probably didn't pay much attention. And then you take the test at the end of the course and I dismally fail the test, even though I'm <laughs> one of the top salespeople. Wow. And my, my boss, his name is Mike Rest. And Mike pulls me aside. He was actually a very gentle, good, thoughtful boss, actually. Much better now that I look back. And he says, Kevin, you know, I know you're one of our top salespeople. We're clearly not going to fire you. But had you taken the time to embed all these new tools, you could be even better. You might even be number one. But you chose not to. And so I'll tell you what you're going to do. They're going to come back through in a few months. I want you to take it again, but I want you to learn to be a teacher of it, an inside teacher. So take the time to learn it so well that you become the teacher. And that was a good lesson. It was a good lesson because I started, you know, started getting a big head of, oh, I'm so good. I'm so good. I can sell. And it turns out I then took it really seriously, really seriously, really learned how to teach it and then became the inside in-house teacher for all the new people coming in. And I've used that derivations of that course and that concept uh, throughout my career. So the, the first part of learning is you have to be willing to learn. You have to be humble enough to say, as good as I am, I could be better. You know, thank, thank goodness that he told me that that's what I needed to do. And that was a great lesson. And then from then on, I was always curious and wanted to learn more. Even if I'm the expert in that field, I go, well, there's someone else who knows some other little tidbit I don't know. I need to learn from them, right? So it really became a learning experience. And curiosity is so critical to success that um, that was a great learning moment. I was, you know, 19 years old, something like that, right? 18 or 19. So then after that, I worked for IBM for a bit in an intern role during college. Great experience, big, big company, and then went out to a big company. And so then I'm, I'm, I'm there for about a year, and someone comes in, another company offers me twice the salary. And I say, look, I don't want to leave. I feel bad. 
they're offering me twice the salary. And of course, big companies, you know, they have gradations and this is what you can pay people. And no matter what you do, you can't break that rule because it'll break all the, the tiers on the ladder and all that. So there's nothing they could do. So I was so dedicated to finish up my work. Everyone else went home on my final day. It's a Friday. I'm there till after midnight finishing the work so I could put it on the vice president's desk with a nice note and said, I said, there was no one to walk me out. There was no one to take anything. I just left my badge on the desk and walked out, you know, 1 a.m. Because I was so dedicated, I I did not want to leave anyone hanging with this couple of huge projects that I had to finish. So I just stayed and and, and plowed them out. But, but, you know, that that, that was good. Then I went to the next company. It was a semiconductor company also. And then I really traveled a lot because uh, I was on the West Coast, but owned uh, the East Coast from an application engineer standpoint. And so I really had to be on the East Coast almost every week, right? Just traveled a lot, had young kids. It was really hard, but had to do it. You know, that, 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 that was the job. And then finally left that, went to a very small company. I don't know, it was a public company, actually, but smaller, right? A few hundred people. And shortly after I got there, within a few weeks, unrelated to me, they lost their two largest customers. At the time, was IBM and DEC. Wow. It was IBM and DEC. And so about 80 or 90% of the business literally evaporated. The stock went to like seven cents, and they closed the entire Silicon Valley facility. And I don't know, I was there six months, I was laid off. And that was the first time I got laid off. And now I, I go, I walked out of this great job. They gave me a regional manager, regional director title over here. The company's gone. What do I do? And um, one of the people that I knew in the semiconductor industry said, well, look, I, I got a job for you right now. I'm on the board of this tiny little company. It has like six people in it. So then I went to that. The name of the company was Hestia. We were doing, we were doing advanced semiconductor packaging and multi-chip module packaging. Now, there was never any money. Sometimes they couldn't meet payroll, you know, tiny little thing. But I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. And I wanted to work more hours and I wanted to do more. And that's where I learned all about startups. Hmm. That's where I learned because when you've only got five, six people, you start to do everything. Like for a while, there was no finance person. So I sat down at the finance desk. There was the password to get into the system. And I go, okay, well, I have to learn finance. There is no one else here, right? And I had a and I had to create marketing content because the marketing content person left. And I had, you know, before you know, I was doing engineering. So I was doing a little bit of everything. I might not have been very good at any of it, but that's not the point. The point is I actually got to learn what it was to sit down and actually do the accounting for the company, handle the payroll, yeah. do sales, create marketing literature and content, right? Uh, I still going back and work on engineering problems, uh, file patents. I had to do all of those things. That was great training because that really set me up to then go start up a company and actually know what the other people have to do. Not that I can do it better than them, but I'm not asking them to do anything that I don't have some sense of skill in, right? That's a good segue into a question I wanted to ask you. Now that you're figuring out as a founder, the multiple hats that you have to wear mm-hmm. as you begin your journey. Huge sacrifices must be made because you don't have the resources to hire the who. So you have to learn the what. Mm-hmm. I recently tuned into one of your talks and something you said resonated with me. You referenced janitors and mm-hmm. you said they built a room, they added more rooms, mm-hmm. but they never gave you more janitors. Mm-hmm. And it's still just you cleaning the floor every day. Mm-hmm. And the critical thinking janitor, Google's floor cleaning robots find some, 
and now becomes the overlord of the robots yes. and now starts to decide where they clean, who repairs them, what right. they should clean, etc. Right. Now, I might be off base here, but I felt like you were using this as a metaphor for entrepreneurs. And even if you weren't, and you can tell us in a second, let's take that topic in that direction, right? As an entrepreneur, I often find myself juggling many roles, especially at the onset of my company. You're the janitor, sales, marketing, product, CEO, accountant. Now, I tried to recently Google floor cleaning robots so I can, number one, relieve my tasks Mm -hmm. that I'm not the most qualified to take on. And number Mm -hmm. two, find time to spend on my strengths because Mm -hmm. every CEO founder has strengths that make it rain for Mm -hmm. the company. Mm -hmm. But I come to find out that these robots are very expensive Mm -hmm. and some of them are very hard to find especially the ones that are good enough where they don't bump into the walls every few minutes and kind of crash. Right. So do you have any advice for entrepreneurs looking to find their own robots so that they can effectively find their work purpose uh, in their business and really work on their business rather than in their business? Well, look, whether it's the use of AI in a variety of ways or robots or more humans, You have got to amplify you. You have to, because you can't do everything. We all do when we're an entrepreneur and when we're starting a company. But in the end, you can't do everything. And you've got to have either more bodies or more brain power. The way you get more brain power is hire more people or hire more AI or robots or robot uh, assistants or, you know, whatever, right? Robotic process automation, any of those. You have no choice, and you have to multiply that, and you have to get yourself out of the things that you're probably not adding a lot of value. And I always, um, when I talk to new CEOs, I say, well, show me your calendar, and they show me all these things. They go, what of these are you at? Like, you at, you are the only one that can add value to that. Like, the only one in the world, maybe. I go, well, this. Okay, you need to do more of that because there's lots of other people who can do these other things. Well, I don't have money. Okay, well, find people who will help you, maybe. Find people who will, you know, do it just for stock. Maybe part-time, not full-time, right? Maybe go raise some money. I mean, there's lots of choices. Some of it, you can now use AI. So mm-hmm. marketing content, advertising content, uh, blog posts, you know, GPT and other large language models are writing really beautiful prose that I can't write. And I can write, but I can't write like that. That writes like it learned from a trillion phrases, which it did. So you have to amplify your brain. And there's no other way to get there. You cannot, you know, you're not going to build any kind of scalable company with you doing everything. Now, most of my companies, no matter what stage they are, there are still things that if they don't come to me, no one will solve them. Does that make and yeah. so, I, I, and sometimes we say, oh, it's Kevin's consulting business. You know what I mean? It seems like that. <laughs> But the fact of the matter is that was the strength you brought to the business in the first place. And that's where you should be spending all your time because that's what differentiates you and your business. And that's where you have to spend the time. So you've got to spend the time with the very, like, oh, only, only you all can go into that customer and close the $3 million deal. Yeah. Well, then that's what you should be focused on. Yeah, but I have to do, no, you don't. Go do that. Yeah, but no, it doesn't matter. Go do that. Go do the things that you're strong in. You're going to have to leave the other things, either set them aside or get other people to do them. I had a CEO coach once that looked at my calendar and did some of that, but had one other, one other view, and I've never been good at it, but he was so right. He looked at the calendar. He said, your calendar is full up. It's, really, it's busy for weeks. I said, yes, it is. Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah, he, says, he says, nope, it's the worst thing in the world. He says, 
what you need to be doing is thinking, strategizing, and bringing your uniqueness to this business. And you've given yourself no time to do that. All you're doing is attending meetings. Yeah, but if I don't, okay, then you hire the wrong people. All you're doing is attending meetings. And you're not going to be successful if that's all you do. You need 80% of your calendar blank and left blank. So you can deal with the emails that come in and, and think about them strategically rather than just get a reply out, right? Because I've got 300 more. Everything's got to be strategic that you do because it will multiply across your organization. And, and, and so you need the time to do that because no one else in your business is going to do that. It's you. And that was a very good lesson, uh, one that I'm still not good at. But, but I, when I look at my calendar every day, I go, he's been right for like 25 years. Wow. It's funny because for me, I look at my calendar and I have one of those calendars where every minute is booked. However, I try to find two sprints, 90 minutes each, to really focus on the day's priority. Mm -hmm. But I find that sometimes it's about setting the right process and systems. And when that breaks, no matter how good your team is, they're not able to fully engage and produce. And in that case, then it flows up to you when there are issues, especially with clients, right? Of course. Or your product. But I'm, I'm starting to think, I think Ray Dalio said, you have to m- try to find ways of making enough money to fire yourself from everything you shouldn't be doing. That is true. Yeah. So, so you might get not get there plate. now. Yeah. So you might be struggling right now. That's a sacrifice that a, a CEO entrepreneur sure. would make. But you can't do it forever. You didn't create your business to find a job. That's not the reason you created a business. So it's interesting. It's interesting on that level, but let's change it up a little bit in terms of, so now you're working and you're utilizing your skills in order to facilitate growth and value to your customer. But you've also spoken about the importance of finding inspiration in your work. Mm-hmm. So could you delve a little deeper into what inspires yep. you and how you use that to motivate those around you, not on the work side, but really more on the facilitation and inspiration side? Right. You know, um, first of all, everyone comes to a company, whether they're an employee or they're starting their company or whatever, uh, with with a different reason for being there, a different purpose, a different inspiration, right? And some people are inspired by the work. Some people are inspired about changing the world. Some people are inspired by solving pain points. Uh, many people come for money, just is. It's not right or wrong. Some people come for title. It's why they're there. Some people come for fame, fortune, whatever, right? Yeah. And And you need to know why each person is there. For me, uh, I just love to find huge pain points and solve them. And that gives me great joy, right? I'm highly inspired to do that. And sometimes that's around climate change. As you know, I, yep. I did a lot in that space. Uh, sometimes it's around AI and I've done a lot in that space. I know they're completely unrelated, but it doesn't matter. Point is, is you've got all these pens and they're disparate fields. How can that possibly be? I said, no, they're all the same. I was solving a pain point. Yeah. And I didn't break the laws of physics doing it. And yes, I had to go learn a brand new field. And that was exciting, not, not scary. Not scary at all. It was exciting. I got to learn a brand new field. Do I really have to do the same thing that I did five years ago over and over again? I would do something new. So yeah. I solved that problem. I want to go solve a new problem, right? Uh, 
And so that drives me a lot. Find real pain points for real customers. Test your hypothesis with real customers. You know, a good example recently over the last year or two is, um, you know, this juicing company that had the juicing box that sat on the counter and you bought these juice bags from them and it was a $350 machine that you put the juice bag in and you wire it to water, put water in, whatever, and, it, and it'd make juice for you, okay? Yeah. No, it's not fresh juice. It's juice from concentrated in a exactly. bag, right? But whatever. So I'm thinking... I mean, they got they raised hundreds of millions of dollars for this dumb thing before it went bankrupt. <laughs> and nobody came to me and asked me, but I, I would ask the question, which I would ask anyone else, which is, what pain point are you solving? Is it that there's no juice at the grocery store? They're always out. Is it that they don't have frozen condensed juice anymore? Is it that they don't have organic juice you know, is it that the grocery store is a million miles away? Then tell me what problem we're trying to solve here because I don't believe that a lack of, of, of juice in my household is a major problem. First of all, I ran out. I don't care. Second of all, probably it's around the corner in a warehouse called a grocery store, and probably they have like 5,000 cartons of juice or 1,000 frozen ones that you can make from concentrate. Is there really a pain point here? Now, had I asked that, I think they would have looked at me and said, no, there isn't a pain. It turns out there wasn't a pain point, and, and they didn't sell enough, and the sales went up, and they went down to zero. And then people figured out they could just buy the packets, not the machine, <laughs> squeeze the packets into a gallon, mix it with water, and they had the same thing because it was just condensed juice, right, dehydrated juice. So I, you know, don't build companies and products that you are so passionate about, but actually it's a solution looking for a problem. Don't do that. Right. Please go find the problem. And we've all done this many times and we all want to hang on. Even I always want to hang on to my, oh, you don't, nobody understands. It's the best idea. No, if it was the best idea, others would understand. Trust me, you will hear it in their voice. They might not be able to design the product for you, but they'll go, that solves a pain point in my life. Right. I invented soundproof drywall that solved a huge pain point for builders because they didn't have any other practical ways of keeping sound between apartments and condominiums and townhomes and hotel rooms and things like that. And then we gave them an easy way. Just put up this piece of drywall. Right. Yeah. So real pain points, real pain points. That's what drives me. And when I've solved my biggest, biggest fundamental problems, including in AI, it was because I stewed on it and stewed on it and stewed on it. And finally, one morning, woke up and said, I know where I can get all the data that I need. And if I have all that data, I'm not breaking the laws of physics. I can reproduce this over here, but I need this training here. Once I figured that out, then it was a simple matter of a million lines of code, okay? So it was really hard, but you had to solve the problem. It had to be a tractable problem, right? Yeah. So that, that drives me. And uh, everybody's got their own drive, but I, um, and you have to be inspired by the, the products or services of the company. I, I think it's very hard to go to work for someone and you go, I actually don't believe in their message or I don't believe in their story or I don't believe what they're doing is moral or ethical. Even if it's not illegal, there's just a lot of that. Well, I, you know, I'm a marketing company that's going to go and differentiate this and get students into that. And you go, but it's not different. That's kind of lying to them. And that's their life. That's my job. You know, so you might not be inspired to do that, right? That yeah. that is that is truly so. Find also find things that inspire you, whether the products or services, and you might find that you are inspired by fields that you had no idea would inspire you, right? Yep, you had no idea. I mean, I had no idea I was going to go do something in drywall and windows, 
I mean, in building management systems. Why would I ever do that? But then I started looking at the planet, and the, you know, before that, before you know it, I was very inspired to make a difference in climate change, and that drove me to invent new products. My world is exactly that. I'm in the consumer packaged goods world, and I speak with brands all the time, where they come to me and they claim that they're going to launch an energy bar or water. And I right. ask them to differentiate question, us. I'm asking the question, have you been to your local <laughs> store any time in the last 30 days? Have you right. actually walked through the aisle that you want to launch this new bar? Yes. And they just, it's because it's, they're excited about it. Same thing on, in the pet space. Right. I have a cat or a bird and I love them so much. Let me open up a store. I mean, that's, that's kind of where yeah, it all stems that, from. But that's, but that's not a pain point. You didn't solve someone else's pain point. You no. might have solved your pain point for your cat. For, you got to go solve real pain. Like, just talking about the energy bar thing, there is no current pain point for people who cannot find an energy <laughs> bar to their liking. We got Correct. glutinous ones, gluten-free ones, fatty ones, uh, no fat. It got every, you know, if this is 20 years ago or 10 years ago, maybe, yeah. you'd say there's still room for some niche sort of products in there. That ship sailed, right? And same with water. There's tons of different waters, big companies, small companies, Fiji from all over the world, this spring, that spring, plenty of water. That, that place is saturated. You want to come up with a food item, you better do it in a place that's not saturated, that's yep. really unique. And then still it's CPG, so you better have a lot of money. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just not cheap to do. No, not at all. And I think it's really, can you disrupt your space? That's right. kind of a question that you want to ask. Because right. if you can never disrupt your space, then why are you really getting into it? If it's a hobby and a passion and you can make some money out of it, there's no harm in creating a business, right? That's why well, you probably, probably be a money losing business, but yes. I mean, you, you'd probably don't want to go into the energy or bar business. You know, if you're Nestle, you'd say yeah. we've decided to get in the energy or bar business or, or Procter and Gamble or whatever, because they've just got immense mass, immense budget. They could lose money on that product for three years to gain shelf space, right? They can play that game. If you're a startup, you go, I know. I'm going to make a cookie. Yeah. Really? A cookie? Are there no cookies in the world anymore? Well, mine <laughs> tastes better. Yeah, tastes Nobody better. cares. And then you end up in grocery stores, and you know, you're giving out little tastes of your cooking. And people go, oh, that's nice. And, you know, forget it. Good, good, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. No, Bad idea. I, I totally agreed. So let's talk about disruptors. You're obviously one of them. You co-founded a company we just spoke about, uh, Serious Energy. Yeah. And that's a prime example of really getting into an industry that you can find disruption in. It's a clean tech company, if I uh, remember correctly. Yeah, it was. We sold it all off to different companies, and those products are all made by different brands now, but doing you know, multiple billions of dollars. It's huge. That is awesome. So I can only imagine the challenges that you faced when you began the company. Yeah. Can you share some of those obstacles that kept you up? Because I, I, it's not just what I like about this, is that you didn't just start a company, you started a company in a space that is very difficult to get into. You mostly have to get funded. Funding is very difficult to achieve in some relations. So That's right. tell us a little bit about those obstacles and what kept you up at night. So for, first of all, it's what's great about the construction material space is technology-wise, it's easy to disrupt. Mostly, there's been no invention in the space in 100 years. Hmm. So when you look at drywall, nobody did anything in drywall for the better part of 100 years. It wasn't hard for you to disrupt the product. Okay, fine. What is very hard is building out the channel and convincing 
contractors to use your product. Yeah. So, of course, me being from the tech space, I go, well, we'll go to all these labs. We will measure all this stuff and we will prove it. And I'd have contractors say, well, how do I know you didn't pay the lab? Well, of course we paid the lab. We use the lab. It's a commercial lab. We paid them. Well, see, you paid them, and therefore, I don't believe these numbers. No, no, no. No, you have to pay a lab. They're not going to do it for free. <laughs> Why? And I'm down the road of, look, can you just use the stuff? Why would I use it? How do I know it works? I might get sued. And by the way, I've done it this old way since 1960s, and that's what my dad taught me. I know, yeah. but it doesn't work. Well, not my problem. I mean, it's unbelievable. Very, very hard to change old habits in that space. It's not like social media or tech where people will go, the next new gold shiny object. They don't touch gold shiny objects in construction. They go, yeah. I, built, I built it this way for 100 years. I'm not changing it. That kept me up at night the most because we, we had amazing windows that are still made by Alpen Windows now and um, amazing soundproof drywall that's made by Pabco uh, out on the West Coast, but it's available nationwide. And the basic problem was uh, people just didn't want to change. And they, they would rather do it the old way. Our, our higher value windows were three to four times the insulative value of dual pane, three to four times better. And in HV, you know, uh, you know an energy modelers would look at a house or, or building or whatever, and they'd, we'd give them the U value or R value, which is the resistance of the heat flow through a window, and they'd plug it in, they'd do the calculations and all that, they go, oh, I don't believe this. This says I only need two chillers. I'm going to put in four anyway. And I go, but you don't need to put in four. By not putting in those two, it actually pays for the windows. No, I'll get sued. I'm going to put in four. You don't need four. The numbers are correct. They came from the Department of Energy, who, does, who gives you these modeling numbers. I don't believe the model. It must be wrong. I mean, this is what you run into. And, and you know, this is in a field where people have just done it this way, and they don't question it, and they know when they do it that way, they didn't get sued. And so those are the things you ran into. And that was like just pulling teeth. It took, you know, it took a good decade for you know, Quiet Rock to be a huge product and higher value windows to be a huge product. But you were just plugging away every week and every month and every year. The architects would design you in and then they'd value engineer you out down the line. Why did you value engineer us out at the contractor level? Why should we pay three times for windows? Well, because they're going to save the planet and get their money back in five years. Yeah, uh, I don't believe you. And by the way, it doesn't matter. Uh, the bank doesn't want to fund this much. And, and so what we would see windows, drywall, other uh, building energy savings, all that stuff get ripped out so they could put granite in the lobby. And you go, you don't need the granite. Why don't you put these things? Nope. We'd rather, we can only have one or the other. The granite's very expensive. We're putting granite in the lobby. But, but you could save the planet. Well, that's it. Not my problem. I'm going to put granite in the lobby. So, so trust me, you stay up every night because you here you did the right thing for humanity. You're actually yeah. doing the right thing for the job, for the contractor, for everybody involved, for the building owner. And still, you most of the time, you're pulling teeth. Now, yep. time has moved on and people know a little more and they are using those products a lot more today. But that's an example of solving a real pain point. People really wanted it. The building owners wanted it. But you had all of this you know, uphill to climb. And I'll give you one example with the drywall. So we went out and tested the idea of soundproof drywall, and contractors went nuts and said, of course we'll use it. That's fabulous. And then when we're done with the product, it's complicated and expensive to make. And, you know, a sheet of that's going to be maybe $40 or $50, depending on what level you get, versus maybe $10 for a sheet of drywall. Mm -hmm. And then the contractors go, well, why would I ever spend $50? Well, you're making a soundproof wall. How else would you make it? Well, we'd put... Uh, 
uh, you know, two or three layers of drywall on each side and would hang them on uh, on uh, resilient channels. I said, did you look at the labor cost of doing that? It costs way more than this one sheet of drywall. Oh, yeah, but each drywall is only $10. Yeah, but now you've got six of them. I, you know, I mean, you couldn't reason with them. It was yeah. the funniest thing because they just couldn't bring themselves to pay $50 for a sheet of drywall when they could get one for 10 But it was apples and oranges, right? Yeah. And, and so it eventually people got over that and they realized that did save the money in the overall project cost. And, and, and they didn't get sued because most people were getting sued in those days for, for some proofing that didn't work. Yeah. It's amazing how as a founder, you believe in something so much and you just see the vision, but no one else really sees it in the early days. They always, at the end, when you sell it for a few billion dollars, they right. compliment you on how awesome you were, That's but right. it puts you on covers, right? But until then, yeah. right, it, it's, it's that grind. And you said something interesting. It took you 10 years to really showcase success. And that's kind of the 10 years to become an overnight success. I say it's somewhere between 10 and 15, maybe 20, depending on the business. But that's the allure, right, for the entrepreneurs. Oh, I see. think the allure is they look at these tech companies that go yeah. from zero to uh, you know, a, a $2 billion valuation in a year. Yeah. And they go, I want to be that. Yeah. Well, those are the ones that are getting the headlines. And yes, there are a few a year. I, you know, and, and yes, that that's, but a lot of that was luck. And I'm not, I don't want to take anything away from the people who worked hard to do them. Right. Yeah. It's just, you had to be at the right place, the right place right at time. the right time yeah. for the right market. It was just seated right. And the technology was right. And, it, you know, that market fit had to be absolutely perfect for that to happen. And it does happen a few times a year, but that's out of 5,000, 10,000 startups a year. Exactly. Everyone wants to be one of those too. So do I, but yeah. the easy money doesn't happen very often. For sure. And, and, and if you statistically look at it, right, it's one company out of 5,000, 10,000 companies, which in relative terms is zero. Right. So you don't right. really have a chance. It's like the allure of acting. My wife's a, an actor yeah. to be, to, to be that a lister as everybody wants, you look at SAG, to make insurance for SAG, mm -hmm. you need like 29 grand mm -hmm. for the year. Mm -hmm. And 80 plus percent of all SAG members do not qualify That's right. for that insurance. That's right. I know. And I, you know, I hire, well, because I do, we haven't talked about it, but I'm film and Broadway and musicals and theater and all that is my other side. It's a balancing side, but it's a side I love. And, uh, and so I, you know, work with SAG all the time and hire SAG actors. And my last movie was, uh, of course, all, all, all SAG, 1660 Vine. That is not available to watch yet, but it will be on streaming services soon. And, and we had a whole cast of influencers, actually, that, you know, really sing and dance on TikTok. And nice. are, they've got 60 million followers. So it's, it's, it's fantastic. And the movie's fantastic. It's about influencers come to live together in Hollywood, right? And um, we're disrupting the way we make movies so that we can make them at a lower cost and, and faster and, and get post-production done faster. There's a lot you can do. That's another field that has not been touched in a very long time. There is, you know, there's a model to make a feature film and it's six months or four yeah. months or nine months or whatever. But we could do it a lot faster if, you're, if you really use technology and you're very thoughtful about how you do it. And you have a director who's willing to let you do it, which is another thing. But the long and the short of that is... Uh, you know, I think when people look at the actor's strike, that's very much becoming about AI. It's a bunch about a, about a, a bunch of other things, but that and the writer's strike is about AI taking jobs. And yeah, there are 160,000 actors on strike right now. And mm -hmm. out of 160,000, I don't know, a few hundred make a killer living, maybe a few hundred, maybe a yeah. hundred, maybe 30. 
maybe 30. Yeah. You know, that business, you know, Tom Cruise aside and a few others aside, the money in the business that used to come from theatrical releases as well as television is gone. Theatrical yep. releases, you know, theaters are down 30, 35, 40%, and TV is down by 50%. So that leaves streaming, and everybody says, well, streaming is great. Okay, all the streamers are losing money to the Correct. tune of a billion a year. Yep. So it's very easy to go on strike and say, well, I, I want, you know, Bob Iger's paycheck. And, I, and by the way, I know you know this. When, when, they, when Disney shows in their, in their numbers that Bob Iger got, call it a, you know, a $50 million package, so what he probably got is a million dollar salary and 49 million in stock options that today, the day he got them are worthless because yeah. he will have to buy them at the strike price that is the going rate today. And you can't move those dates anymore. The SEC outlawed that a decade ago. So it shows, you know, 50 million, but actually he got his paycheck. It's a great paycheck. The only way he gets that 50 is if he drives the stock up. In fact, he may have to double the stock to do that, right? Now, he may or may not do that. But to the shareholders, if he drives that stock up to that level, he earned it. He he drove another several billion dollars of value. Great. But when actors see that, they go, I can't make 29K a year, and he just made 50 million. No, he didn't make 50 million. But I can't explain it to people. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I just, full disclosure, it's... You know, those are stock options that are that are worthless today, right? And he's yeah. gonna have to earn those. And um, and so I, I think just like Broadway, the actors on Broadway who are amazing, they're part of equity, not SAG. I know so many of them, and I've gotten to work with so many. And when I sit down and I actually explain to them how producing works and how the money works, and uh, and I take them through those percentages and how the contracts work, and the fact that. About nine out of 10 times, the people who put money into a Broadway show lost their money, all of it. Yep. And one out of 10, you get a Hamilton, and it was probably worth you know, making all 10 bets because you landed a Hamilton. Yeah. Actor by actor by actor said, I had no idea. I thought when the show's doing a million a week, the producers are making like 950,000 a week, and, I, and I'm stuck with you know, 2,000 a week, right? which is about what yeah. they get paid on Broadway. They had no idea that all of that money that comes in goes to pay everyone in the show, all of the union workers around the show. Then it goes to pay the rent for the theater, which is hundreds of thousands of dollars a week, by the way. Then it goes to pay advertising so you can bring people into the theater. That's hundreds of thousands of dollars a week. And, and, and normally at a million dollars a week, there is nothing left over for the investors yet. Now, if you get to 1.2, 1.5, now you start to get some money left over for the investors. So let's say it had an extra 200000 a week. That's great. To bring a musical to Broadway today is about $23 million. So you need 100 and something weeks making the 200 k over the number to, get, to just get them to break even. Break and even. by the way, I could have broken even by putting money in my mattress. So why would I do it? So I explain this to an actor. They go, Really? You mean the producers aren't just getting rich? No, they're going broke. This is a terrible <laughs> business. But, but nobody wants to tell you that. I don't know why. What is the secret? Let me just tell you. It doesn't mean investors shouldn't do it. There's lots of reasons to do it in fame and fortune. You get to meet actor, whatever. But, you, you know, you're going to lose your money maybe nine out of ten times, and you hope that you get a Hamilton or you hope that you get a, uh, you know, some big show like that. And, uh, but, but we need to tell the actors that. So the actors don't think producers are making all this money. And this is true in Hollywood. I think there needs to be much more transparency over who's really making money, which is very few people, and who's not. And if actors really want to be angry, I don't know, angry, they really want to think about it, 
they've got actors that make ten million a movie, but most actors make two thousand a movie. Correct. So you know they get they get scale, which is a hundred depending on the size of the film, but two hundred to four hundred a day, right? And sometimes only one hundred and fifty a day is very small, and people don't realize that. So these actors who are making two hundred and twenty five dollars a day, you know, I think they need to talk to the producers about the people that are making ten million for the same movie they made two thousand on. No, you'd have no movie without Tom Cruise. Correct. So it turns out if you want a movie that's going to make a billion at the box office, you actually need Tom Cruise, and he's not doing it for less than $10 million or 20 or whatever his going rate is today. So th- this is just the business, and I don't know how we're going to fix that. I don't know how we're going to fix the AI problem. Uh, I know what's going to happen. I shouldn't say that. I kind of know what's going to happen. We haven't talked about a lot of it. So the actors are upset among one of several demands, and, and I'm not taking sides here. I mean, I agree that this is wrong, but... But the actors are upset because the studios came forth and said, here's what we'll do. We will take you, if you're a background actor, not a front actor. By the way, front actors, they've been using their likeness for a long time. Already that's in the contracts. You know, if you're Tom Cruise, yeah, you can use my likeness in these ways. I have to approve it and you'll pay me another million dollars to do it or whatever it is. But if you're a background actor, the, the, the studios proposed, we will pay you a minimum of one day when you're on the set. But whatever we got, we can now use AI to turn into more likenesses of you, both voice and visual, if wow. we need to use them in other scenes without paying you anymore. Of course, the actors said, no way. Like, you got to pay me more. Or there's got to be a different contract. Here's what's really going to happen. What's really going to happen is, which we've already been able to do, we're going to use AI to create humans that aren't there at all. Correct. And now the actor gets nothing. And I think that the actors are going, I want a better deal than that. And the studios are going, I just gave you a, a, a really good gift. Like, I'll actually use you at least once before I do AI. Now which, now you're forcing me to say, fine, uh, if I use you, I have to pay you and pay you and pay you in perpetuity. Therefore, I won't use anyone. I'll just create these characters out of AI, and they won't actually exist on the set at all. I'll just make them do what I want them to do, which is totally available to studios today. Two years from now, totally possible to create a full movie with zero actors? Yep, there's already full a full scale. movie. There's already a full scale. Well, there's a 12-minute movie that was done with zero actors. It's clearly not the quality of Hollywood, but it was done with zero actors. And there's an episode of uh, one of the cartoon uh, kinds of things that's on. Um, I have to think what it is. There's an episode of that that is also made fully by AI, just by text, typing in what I want the subject to be and what I want. And it generated everything. Oh, South Park. So they did an episode yeah. of South Park just by typing some text. Now, the South Park looks really like South Park because that's easy to do in computer, yeah. uh, computer automated generation. It is, it, it is a lot harder to make humans, but we are getting very close because we're now able to make individual frames of humans that are indistinguishable from a, fo- a photograph. Yep. I mean, really great. In fact, we could take a model that never sh- shot somewhere else just as long as we got her face and her body type or him, right, and take that and uh, come up with all kinds of other shots without ever using a camera. Just do it all digitally. Now, yes, people could have done that in Photoshop with a lot of effort, but now I can just do it by typing text, right? So I've democratized the access to these technologies. Uh, So yes, we're going to see movies. We're going to see TV shows that are fully written by AI. The studios gave the writers sort of a deal that said, you know, we, we have a right to use AI and reduce the you know, reduce the usage and uh, of, of, of writers in the writer's room, but we'll have a writer in charge of the AI. And then I'll tell you what's going to happen. They're going to put a producer in charge of the AI. There won't be any writer in the writer's room. They're going to use AI. It's going to happen. And I know what everyone's saying. Well, AI can't write with the nuance. Okay, AI has read every novel ever written that's available to it, 
it can write with nuance. It doesn't know that it's writing with nuance. It's just, it's just writing based on math, right? Because that's all yeah. AI is, is math. But yes, and, and again, I, I don't want to anger anyone, right? I'm not taking sides in the issue. I'm just saying, here's the technology. And, and just like when Napster came and all of a sudden there was music to download, in the end, music was going to stream to you or be downloadable, period, full stop. You mm-hmm. couldn't fight that. And finally, when the music studios, you know, when the music publishers embraced that is when they said, okay, we're just going to do a deal with Spotify that works for us and the artists the best we can. It's going to be here to stay. When they fought it, they got nothing. So you can't fight the march of technology. It, it never works. If you're a horse and buggy manufacturer, you can do what you want, but eventually the car is coming, right? Yeah, and this is true. This is true with AI. So I think all these people on strike had better realize, one, there's no money in streaming, and they, the whole industry's got to figure that out. It's a problem for everybody, including cer- certainly the actors and the writers. And two, AI is here to stay. You can be part of it or not part of it, but it's going to be used. Yeah. And then what do um, you do? And I don't have the answer to that. Absolutely. So not many, I mean, we're, we're speaking about your accomplishments, right? You're, you're, you're a producer, you're an entrepreneur, you've done many things that most would just dream of and have been successful in the past. And you were rewarded for it. You were the Entrepreneur of the Year by Inc. Magazine. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. What did that recognition mean to you and how has it influenced your career and when did it happen? Yeah, I, I, let's see. Uh, I've been fortunate to be on so many covers, so many magazines in various ways, right? But Inc. Magazine cover, first of all, it was a shock. They don't tell you. They're just coming in to do stories on a variety of entrepreneurs. Yeah. And it turns out they looked at all of them and they chose me as the Entrepreneur of the Year. I did not find out until someone called me and said, I just went, I was just at the airport, I think in Miami, and you're on the cover of Inc. Magazine as the Entrepreneur of the Year. I had wow. no idea. So first of all, it's humbling because that's not something you beg for or ask for. I was just doing my thing, right? Just doing what I do and uh, building a company the best way I can. Here's what I would say about that. You know, fame is fleeting, very fleeting. Whenever you're on the top like that, you'll be on the bottom in a few weeks. It just is. And so, you know, please be humble about it. And uh, I've been honored to be in all of these publications and meet presidents and do all of those things. But in the end, you just have to be humble because the only reason that's happening is because you're building a company in a way where your employees love coming to work. Everyone loves being there. You know, it's in their blood. You've, you've built a culture, right? That's yeah. why people want to talk to you. That's why people want to meet you. That's why magazines want to cover you. They don't, I shouldn't say that, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to cover people who are, uh, you'll probably cut it out, but they don't want to cover people who are assholes, right? Um, it's kind of the no asshole rule, right? Because, yeah, you know, you're going to, I can pick some people in Silicon Valley that are like that. And yes, they've got coverage, but it's just, it's just not good, right? And there's been times I've had to be tough and there were times in 2000 when the, you know, when the market fell and I, and I, unlike any other CEO in the Valley at the time, I said, we got to lay off. We got to cut back. We had to cut this company in half. We got to get the profitability. And Forbes covered that. And they were, they were really harsh on me said, and I think the headline was the bosses back in town. Right. <laughs> but the truth is, you know, we were riding on this high of the internet coming and then the bubble kind of burst and it was time to react immediately while you still had money. That's what yeah. great leaders do. And I loved my people and I hugged them all the way out, you know, on the way out. But 
That's what we had to do. And now we had to go from, hey, let's have a foosball machine to let's all work 80 hours a week. And all of a sudden, it was a different Kevin. And fortunately, the people I had in the company got it, loved it, no problem. But it made for a great magazine article that says, oh, boy, he's, he really turned on them. No, I love them all. However, chop, chop, time, you know, time's changed, right? Just you, you got you to gotta flow with that. And, and when the market goes, when the public markets go, then there's no private market money. It's just everything clams up. And so you really got to, got to be aware of that as a good, good leader. But that type of success is not by accident, right? Magazines are not writing about you and you're not seeing these returns on your investment in delivering shareholder value just by accident. So is there a habit that you've developed and cultivated over the years that you think significantly contributed to your continuous success? Because it's not just a one-off. Well, that's a good question. Look, I think perseverance is one. You know, I see a lot of entrepreneurs and I'll add something to this, a little back up a little bit, which is you were talking earlier about customers and products, right? Mm-hmm. And, and someone once said, every company, even the finest companies, have problems with their product and they have problem customers. Not the customers, the problem, but they've got unhappy customers. And you go, no, I know, no, no. Every business, no matter how good you are, I don't care if you're a restaurant or you're Facebook or IBM, right? You have unhappy customers from time to time. It just happens. Something didn't, wasn't to their liking or whatever. And same with the product. No matter what product you got, sometimes there's a bug. Sometimes there's a problem with it. Sometimes it doesn't act the way they want. And those people land on your desk. By the way, you don't talk to all the happy customers as the CEO or the founder. You only get the unhappy ones. Yeah. And after, you know, weeks of unhappy customers who are all going to leave you, you know, you might feel pretty down. Well, you can't feel down. That's just the business. You got to get back up and execute the plan, right? And you got to have a, if if you are not ready to do that, you're not ready to be an entrepreneur. If you're not ready to lose a lot, I don't mean just money, but lose. So you need to have perseverance to persevere through that. And yes, there could be a month where your product is broken and not working, or you've got to do a recall or whatever it is. Doesn't matter. Persevere. You're going to have months where your stock goes down if you're a public company. And I've been in public companies. General Magic stock went all the way down to 93 cents and then all the way back up to almost $20. And, and, but at 93 cents, all the more reason, two things, all the more reason to work harder and all the more reason to get excited about what you've got because obviously they're missing it. And there's only one way but up. <laughs> because because can't go much lower, right? You're going to be delisted at that point. So, so I mean, that's how you have to look at it. And it's not always just about the glass half full. But if you don't have the right attitude and you can't see the end vision, you can't see that today doesn't matter, but three months from now matters, six months from now matters, a year from now yeah. matters. If you can't see that, it's over, right? No one else is going to see it, right? Because they're looking to you as the founder, CEO, CTO, chair, whatever role it is, they're looking to you. And you had better have that. And, and, you know, not everyone's born with that. Not everyone's raised with that. I, I meet a lot of entrepreneurs. I said, are you ready to fail 12 times before the 13th time you're successful? Yep. Oh, I won't fail. <laughs> that's, that's another view. That's one view, probably yep. not correct. And the other thing they say, oh, well, oh, I don't know if I failed, I'd have to, you know, I'd have to go back and work for a company. Okay, they, that's fine, by the way. Not, not everyone can start a company. Not everyone is meant to start a company. So if you're going to start one, my strong advice to you is I don't want you to fail. I want you to be successful. But statistically, and for lots of reasons, you may fail. Little failures, you may, you may lose a lot of battles to win the war. 
In, in your successful company, you will lose a million battles before you win the war. You may be on your fifth or tenth business model, business yep. plan, product before you win the war. Right? That's what's going to happen. Are yeah. you ready to be kicked over and over and over again and punched in the gut? Literally, you're on the way out of the office that day or whatever <clears throat> customer calls your largest customer and says, you know what? I am so unhappy. We're just not using it. It's shelfware. I quit. Now, that's a punch in the gut. Yeah. But, and then you got to get up the next morning and say, okay, well, what can I do to change that? What can I do to replace it? What did we do wrong? What did we learn from this? That, that's all you can do is keep going. So perseverance is so critical. And it might be the only thing. Startups only fail for one reason. What's the reason? Run out of money. Run out of money. Most people don't say that, by the way. <laughs> the only reason you fail is you ran out of money. People say, oh, product market fit and the, 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 the wrong people. The wrong, no, it doesn't matter. If you still have money, you can keep going if you've got perseverance. But if you have no perseverance, you, you just, you know, you will run out of money. And when you run out of money, it's over, right? Everybody goes home. So yeah. don't run out of money, but you have to persevere. In yeah. all of my companies, there were, there were moments where I said, we're not going to make payroll. And I had to go begging for money. Tom Galsano here, here in Rochester founded Paychecks. And if you read his book and you listen to his stories, he was there. He was, you know, running out of money and he had to go out and knock on doors and said, can I do your payroll for you? You know, today that company is worth whatever, $30 billion or $50 billion. But at the time he had to knock on doors and, you know, to get on, and that customer would save them into it. So, you know, exactly the same thing literally begging people and that, that, that one customer, if they could just pay by Friday, I'll be able to make payroll. Yeah. Everyone goes through this. You won't be the only one. But if you're not ready for that pain, don't do it because there is going to be that pain. 100%. I think that's why we're such a close-knit community and we get it. And they say it's lonely at the top. It's really not lonely at the top. You just got to hang out with other entrepreneurs. Other You'll lonely find, entrepreneurs. Yeah, other lonely. So as long as you can find an entrepreneur, you're not going to be that lonely. That's true. Uh, you, you mentioned cup half full, and I, I kind of want to dig a little deeper into that. I, I had Sean Wells on The Seven Hats mm -hmm. uh, previously. Sean is a renowned nutritionist and, and formulation mm -hmm. scientist. Mm -hmm. He had a concept of self-love and sacrifices that entrepreneurs often make. He made a poignant point that I'd love to share. And Please. it went something like this, quote, I thought the way I achieve my greatness is by sacrificing myself. And that's what a good person does sacrifices. And I didn't realize that your cup needs to be overflowing and the people around you get the overflow from your cup instead of taking from your cup. That's where self-care is so important. That's where self-love is so important, end quote. That's great. And I just, I keep on referencing that because that's the beauty about podcasts. You meet people and all of a sudden they give you a nugget and it just changes your life. Yeah. And your cup overfloweth. Okay, cup overfloweth. So as an entrepreneur who's made significant strides, I'm sure you found your cup less than full multiple times. What are your thoughts on being in a high stress, high demanding business and finding your cup half empty and not being able to provide for your loved ones or yourself or your business? Boy, you know, um, Obviously, there's balance in life, and you know, the seven hats is partly about that, right? Very much about that. Look, you have to take care of yourself. So if you if you show up depressed, you're done. Like, if uh, who's going to follow you? Um, we used to teach in sales, right? Talking about the Dale Kearney sales, uh, sales course is when you walked in, whatever problems you had at home, 
which I yeah. hope you were dealing with and loving your family and doing all, you need to switch. Now you're focused on this. A- after work, you will go back and focus on that, but you can't bring it here. And same with you can't bring your stuff home. When you have a bad day at work and your biggest customer left you, you can't go home and wallow in that and, and drink or yell at people. or You can't. These are intertwined, but, but they really need to be dealt with separately so that you can give the best of yourself to each of those people. You want to give the best of yourself to your kids. You, you know, they need you to be loving. They don't understand that a customer left. They don't actually care, right? And so, um, and then you need to leave that. And then when you come back the next day, you go, great, time to deal with that customer. And there might've been an argument at home. There might be financial problems at home. There might be, you got to leave those and you got to come and, 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 and leave that behind or else you can't sell and you can't lead. You can't lead. You know, no one follows a depressed leader. You can quote me on that. No one follows a depressed leader. So I, I will tell you, if we opened with, you know, with the seven hats and how if that's all you do, you know, and I see people do 120 hours a week and that's all they do, literally, you will be depressed because there's nothing else happening in your life. And that means when there's up days and down days, you know, you've got nothing to go back on, right? So you've got to have some other balances. I happen to have my family and I have theater and film. And so I've got left brain, right brain. I've got all these. So look, my technology company, one of one or many of them might be up or down. It might be a terrible day at a tech company. And then I go and spend an hour on some the next film I'm working on. And actually the next film I'm working on stars Whoopi Goldberg of all people. Oh, nice. So, uh, so then I, that brings me joy and I go, that's going to be great. And then there's down times in, in film or Broadway. And then I, you know, that's okay. This tech stuff is up. So at least you got some balance, right? It's, it's a little bit like a teeter totter one's down and the other one's up and vice versa. But if you have no, totter and you've just got the teeter and it's down how are you ever going to get back up there's nothing to balance on the other side there's nothing to walk to it's just down in the ground you're done you can't get back up and you're depressed then nobody will follow you and then you're in the spiral of death and it's it's spiral it's a doom spiral right it's a doom loop and you're doomed so don't get yourself there have high dopamine that helps some sometimes you got to be born with high dopamine but (laughs) but uh, goldie hahn told me I, i know goldie goldie hahn told me Kevin, you, you and I are two of the highest dopamine people I've ever met. So I will say that is a help because even on bad times, I go, well, you know, when I was young, someone told me a joke. They said, um, you know, hey, the house is on fire. What should we do? Well, let's grab some marshmallows. <laughs> In other words, let's make hay out of whatever we have. Can't put, out the, can't put the fire out, so we might as well at least roast some marshmallows and eat those. So I love it. I have one more question, yeah. if you don't mind, a spiritual question. Yeah. Okay. So we've been discussing AI and the rapid pace of technological advancement. What happens if humans become obsolete in 90% of their current jobs? Yeah. Now, this could be a massive blow to our collective ego, right? My spiritual teacher, Atmananda Das, once said that humility is the antidote to the ego. And when you get such a blow where you, you're, we're so identified with what we do, who we are, and all of a sudden it's gone, do you think... AI could be the catalyst for a collective humbling of humanity mm. and ultimately killing our ego as we know it. Here's what I would say, having worked with a lot of AI now for decades, AI is not going to take all our jobs, but it's going to take a lot of our tasks. It's going to yeah. take a lot of our tasks. It's going to make one brain power that I have or that you have equal to five or 10 or 100 brain power. Now that does something interesting to the ego. Here's what it does. It means that the value of a brain of IQ goes way down because 
anyone who can control the AI in some way, work with it, could have 100 brain power, right? And even if they're not that smart, so what? They got 99 brain power. Yeah. That is very different than the world we grew up in where IQ meant everything. Wow, Elon is very smart. Yes, yeah. Elon is very smart. Okay, but now, but now I can have 100 brains that are as smart as Elon, actually, quite yeah. easily for a dollar, for nothing, right? Well, that's humbling. It's very humbling, and it's good for us because it's going to force us to focus on our EQ because as, as the value of an individual's IQ gets lessened, right, yeah. the value of collaboration and cooperation goes way up because now I've got these tools that are going to race so fast that if I'm not collaborating with you and we're not doing this together and thoughtfully that we all agree on, some, someone's going to go totally in the wrong direction, right? So I think the value of collaboration is going to go up and the value of individual's IQ goes down because it's a little bit like this. A thousand years ago, you know, a person who could multiply was so smart. Eventually, we got calculators, and we could all multiply any number by any number, no matter how many digits, and have the answer in a second, right, once we had a calculator. So the value of being able to multiply went to zero, even though a thousand years before it was the equivalent of thousands of dollars, right? Only yeah. one person, oh, the, the guru in town could multiply these big numbers. It went to zero. So we've seen this before, and now we're seeing it in language. We, are, we had these tools in math. We've had it with Excel spreadsheets, right? Yep. Now we've got it in language. We never saw that before. It's humbling, and it's the most positive thing to ever happen to humanity. I love that. All right, so I always close up my interviews with one question, and then you can tell us where we can find you. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest your current success? Uh, well, here's what I would say. Find your way to be humble all the time. There are smarter people than you. There are faster people than you. There are better people than you. Whatever better means, you know, at that particular mm -hmm. task. I don't mean the better. Uh, no matter what you're doing, there are, there are people who can do it better. So be humble. Realize you're lucky. If you have any modicum of success, yes, you worked hard. Granted checkbox, right? Other people are working hard too. Yes, you found balance in your life. Great. But you had some luck and uh, never underestimate the luck because once you realize there was luck involved, you go, oh, I'm actually pretty humbled because my next deal, I might not have luck, right? Because you can't, that kind of comes amorphously and you can't really control it. Uh, so, I, so look, I, I, think, I think that's really, really important. I think it's important to have great partners in your life, family, significant other, whatever, because on down days, you, you know, you need a hug and on down <laughs> yes. days you might cry and all those things. And you just want a partner who's there to support you, right? Yeah. They're not going to wallow in it with you. They're just going to support you and go, I'm here for you. If you were, if you're ready to get up tomorrow and go at it again, go do it. And, uh, so those, those are my suggestions. Kevin, it was such a pleasure having a conversation with you. I really enjoyed it. How would the seven hatters connect with you? What should they be looking for? What are sure. you working on? LinkedIn is best. You can find me on LinkedIn. You have the link so you can, I will. You can yep. push it out. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, but LinkedIn professionally is the best way. And also, you know, I do 50 keynotes a year around the country. You type Kevin Serace speaker and I'll come up at virtually every speaker bureau and they have a whole background on me and you can contact them if if uh, one wants me for a keynote speaker. But um, that's, that is the only thing I ended up really doing on stage these days, right on stage. I didn't get to sing and act, but I do get to keynote speech, which I love enthusing crowds. 
Do you do any consulting with I individuals? Do. I do. I do consulting with individuals. I do consulting with companies. So all around. But you find me on LinkedIn. You can send me a message. It's very easy. I love it. Thank you for gracing us on the seven hats. Oh, really, thank really you. You've appreciate it. Such a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kevin. Let's end today with a show segment that I refer to as what can we hang our hat on? And here is my takeaway. Today, we're navigating the thrilling realm of innovation, diving into some of the coolest tech advancements out there. One standout for me, generative AI. And it's not just a buzzword or the next trendy thing. Think of generative AI as a crystal ball, not the foggy vague kind, but one that offers a clear vision of tomorrow. It hints at a world where our human creativity gets a boost, where we're not the only ones steering the ship of innovation. It's a blend of our imagination and technology's possibilities. Let me tell you something. Exciting times ahead, folks. Much like the business world, life can be compared to a river. Sometimes it's calm and sometimes it's wild. Now imagine AI as a fresh stream pouring into this river, changing its direction and adding momentum. But in the midst of all this change, we can't lose sight of who we are and the values that guide us. As we move forward, it's key to remember that while technology is a powerful tool, it's how we use it that truly matters. It's not just about the next big thing. It's about how we make that next big thing meaningful. As we look into the future and the endless possibilities it holds, let's do it with care, purpose, and a focus on the bigger picture. Life and business are journeys, and it's up to us to make them count. I want to thank Kevin once again for joining me so that we can all benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you receive from it so that we can attract even more high-quality people into our 7 Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selick, and I tip my hat to you.